Hello, I'm Cheryl Kuhlman. I'm the Managing Director of the Warden Social Impact Initiative here at the University of Pennsylvania. And I want to welcome you to the new Knowledge at Warden podcast series, From Backstreet to Wall Street, where we speak with women, innovators, and entrepreneurs who are building peace in a new way. In this episode, we discuss the role of markets and women in building sustainable peace. Research has shown that women's economic empowerment can add $12 trillion to global growth by 2025. This is especially needed in fragile, conflict-ridden areas where poverty and inequality continue to fuel conflict. If we are to build sustainable peace in today's world, market-driven solutions and women have to be part of the equation. Forward-looking countries such as Canada have spearheaded this conversation. In 2017, Canada announced its Feminist International Assistance Policy, which lays out a focus on gender equality and the empowerment of women and girls in a targeted and cross-cutting manner. Here to speak to us about Canada's role in building a new feminist economy is our special guest, Corey Van Gaal, who's the Deputy Director, Impact and Innovative Finance at Global Affairs Canada. Global Affairs Canada leads Canada's international development and humanitarian assistance alongside managing Canada's diplomatic and consular relations and promoting its international trade. Joining us in this conversation is our resident expert, Doreen Shanaz, founder and CEO of IIX, a pioneer in impact investing with a decade of experience innovating solution to women's empowerment for a more inclusive, peaceful world. Doreen and Corey, welcome and thank you very much for joining us today. Doreen, tell us more about the role of markets and women in building peace. What are your thoughts in this area? Thank you, Cheryl, um, for having us um, join this show. And this is indeed a very timely topic with, obviously, what's happening you know, globally and uh, a very timely topic for IX, Knowledge at Wharton, and, of course, our special guest, um, Corey, from Global Affairs Canada to be discussing it. Um, you know, it's very interesting. I guess um, we are talking a lot about women, you know, with the Me Too movement and, you know, with all the gender issues. But I think one thing that we are currently uh, not focusing on as much, and which we should be, is really the the absolutely essential role that women play in peace building. And uh, the reality is, you know, women actually account for a larger share, you know, of the world's poor, and especially when they're girls or young women or even elderly women, and empowering women you know, with livelihoods, it has shown over and over again in research that it not only benefits them, but also their families and the communities that they support. And to really build sort of sustainable peace from ground up, uh, we really have to tackle the very sort of the roots you know, of inequality and injustice in today's world that lead to conflict. So we have to really think of what's making it happen and instead of trying to fix it later on. And... Uh, and one of the big components is really gender inequality. And it's, we know it's not simple. I mean, listen, we know that there's a huge shortfall of even the Sustainable Development Goals, which is about 5 to $7 trillion. And if you think of the money that's there to take care of it, it's, you know, pittance. You know, it's like only close to a trillion, and uh, there's a huge gap. So, frankly, the only way we can meet this gap is to bring private sector into it. Um, and we have to make sure that the private sector learns how the women empowerment can really reduce a lot of this financial risk that we are facing and the political and the social risk. And frankly, it will really enable us to have a peaceful and sustainable economy. Um, so that's sort of my start to uh, you know, set the stage. And I would sort of love to hear what 
Corey has to say. So, Cheryl, back to you. Yeah, thank you. And I think you did set the stage you know, quite well for that. So, Corey, tell us a little bit about yourself. What, what got you started on this journey? Yeah, thanks very much, Cheryl, um, and thanks, Doreen, for the introduction. Um, so I'm the deputy director of our Impact and Innovative Finance Group, which is a new group here at Global Affairs Canada. And we are sort of leading this charge and piloting new approaches and partnerships to support um, private sector, inclusive private sector development in um, low-income countries. So my, my program takes on these new approaches, and we partner with financial institutions and businesses to fill the financing gap that Doreen was talking about. And I guess I got on this, this journey, really, because before joining uh, the Canadian government about 10 years ago, I worked in Canada's banking sector. And there I realized that if we really wanted to address poverty, we needed to harness the mass of wealth um, and economic power that is in, private, in the private sector and in the banking sector globally to help channel some of this wealth um, to lower, in, lower and middle-income countries. But when I first joined the government, I was actually surprised at how little donor activity was connected with main private sector activities in the countries that we provided aid to. And this disconnect has always bothered me a bit, but I think now Canada and other donors are really looking at innovative approaches to bringing in um, private sector companies and banking and the banking industry to help um, you know, create jobs and opportunities um, for you know, vulnerable communities around the world, and also to bring needed social and economic infrastructure to some of these you know, more difficult parts of the world, and we're talking about peace and conflict, but that can also be a so- solution in some of those, um, in those countries as well. And the thing, too, that I found, um, I think that also drove me, is when I would first, was first working in development, I was always shocked at how we would, you know, always refer to the poor as the poor. And really, you know, you, you begin to realize that they're some of the most resilient and resourceful, uh, hardworking people. Um, so this is, I think, by, by bringing them opportunity and by creating opportunities, I hope we can, we can contribute to peace and create more dignified uh, work on, and education opportunities. Um, you know, but this is this is also hard work. It's hard to and I and I recognize that one thing was to really walk the talk, right? So I started myself my own social enterprise um, to see if I could actually help connect women farmers uh, to markets. So I was posted in Colombia, which we we know is has recently undergone a peace process. And part of this, my business's role, too, is to help connect farmers in conflict-affected areas to markets through beauty products. Um, so, again, you, you, you know, to challenge yourself and realize that this is not as easy as it looks, takes a lot of hard work, but I think um, I'm surrounded by really hard-working women in Colombia who are, who are helping, who are empowered and are really helping themselves um, to access new market opportunities. Doreen, I think that's a, a great transition to thinking about the work that you've done on IAX. And, and so then, based on what you've learned over the, the, the decade that you've been doing this, what is the role that impact investing and impact enterprises can play in this peace building? I mean, what, can you share some success stories you have? 
Absolutely. And, you know, I think it was very interesting what Corey was saying that, uh, you know, while she was obviously working uh, with the Canadian government, she also, you know, saw it firsthand and became a social entrepreneur herself um, in Colombia. And, you know, what we do see is um, the fact that there is an incredible correlation between organizations who are focused on a very granular and a ground level um, in working with the people and especially the women, the role that they play in actually creating and sustaining peace. So interestingly, we work, of course, all across Asia, the Pacific, and now we are doing work in the U.S., but this is about five, six years ago, we were approached by the United Nations to really look at um, the conflict areas. So this is, we're talking about Afghanistan, in Indonesia, you know, in Aceh, you know, um, basically after the tsunami, there was a, it became a conflict area. In Myanmar, in Nepal, where the Maoists took over, in Pakistan, in the Philippines, where we, you know, in Mindanao, in the southern part of the Philippines, to see if there was a way to create peace, to create livelihood. And again, it was their role, special role that women were playing. And um, it was fascinating because we actually found a lot of organization and we ended up working very, very closely with them and, um, you know, growing them and then actually raising capital. But it was, was interesting to see the fact that these organizations in their own way, you know, for example, in, uh, in Philippines, there's an organization which was working for coffee, you know, creating coffee and, and employing the people and, and, again, a lot of women workers and, of course, the impact on the family. Um, in Afghanistan, this was a rug manufacturer. So it was really interesting to see across the board, you know, they each had their way of creating organizations and employing the people and giving a new source of livelihood while keeping in mind, you know, the development aspect of it. And I think, you know, again, studies have shown that if there's a definitely a positive correlation, you know, between countries where the ranking of global peace index and the gender equality index as well, because the reality is, you know, if you are giving everyone in the society an opportunity um, to produce and an opportunity to be having a livelihood and be an equal member, you know that you know this will actually create ways for everyone to have food and everyone to actually uh, have a better life. So it is, it is, it was very interesting for us to actually see this and the fact that um, the organizations were doing it. But I think, having said that. You know, it's still a very, very tough challenge to bring investors into it, right? So, because again, you know, people will think 100 times before investing in Afghanistan or in the conflict part of, of Philippines, et cetera. So um, we had to be really, really smart about, you know, really uh, addressing the risk and how do you actually mitigate that risk? And we do see that, again, women do play a big role in mitigating that risk, and we kind of brought that forward. Um, to be able to, um, you know, work in this country. So it was very interesting. So I'm curious, I mean, Corey, I mean, did you, I mean, how did you um, go about that as well in your work in Colombia? I mean, did you see these issues come up? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we found that, you know, definitely in, in conflict-affected areas, it was a lot more difficult to get, uh, you know, even even some of the NGOs working uh, in these regions, let alone private sector companies or or financial institutions that were willing to come 
um, and provide banking services to in conflict-affected regions. So it really puts a lot of strain on on other parts of the country too, or other or neighboring uh, countries where, you know, as a result of the lack of services and access to finance, um, pe- communities and populations start to migrate. Um, so I think you know the things you're talking about, and in some ways, we see at the government of Canada this is an an opportunity too. For us to come in and try to incentivize um, the private sector and financial investors to, you know, to make investments in these regions, you know, Canada recently, in 2018, announced two new programs that aim to diversify how we deliver our development assistance. One is a sovereign loan program, and the second is an international assistance innovation program. And the intention behind these programs is to give Canada greater flexibility in working with new partners and in helping to de-risk some of these investments. So, you know, this is, again, something that I'm personally very passionate about because I, you know, as a social entrepreneur as well, I do believe that, you know, when we can bring in private solutions, they're more likely to be sustainable um, in those communities but sometimes it's difficult to make sure that, you know, we can find partners with the, a risk appetite or sufficient risk appetite to invest. And, and, you know, this is completely normal. So I think for the government of Canada, we've realized that, you know, private investors may perceive the risk to be too high or too low, particularly in least developed countries or fragile contexts, um, and that we can come in and provide uh, concessional, concessional finance, so maybe financing at lower rates or for longer terms, or provide um, first loss guarantees or other other uh, risk enhancement uh, structures that would, you know, help give investors the confidence that if, you know, that you know if they are interested in going in, we can work alongside them to help um, make the risk. Um, profile of those investments more attractive. Of course, we want to continue to share in the risk. So, um, you know, we have to be very careful as, as government in terms of how we assess these types of, of, of decisions to invest. Uh, we want to make sure that we are achieving development impact, particularly for women. And we want to ensure that our funds are instrumental in actually mobilizing more private sector resources and we see this as instrumental in trying to bridge that funding gap that uh, Doreen had talked about earlier. Uh, so, so again, this is this is very early days, and um, you know, donors like the UK and the US are also uh, experimenting with these mechanisms. And I think you know we're learning from each other and and starting to build on on the effectiveness of these tools, and hopefully we can continue to really measure the impact and and start to see that we can help catalyze investments in where they're currently just not going to help support entrepreneurial activity um, wherever those entrepreneurs happen to be, whether that's Colombia or or the Philippines. So uh, that's great, and and according to... um 
reports, the Global Affairs Canada announced that it would commit uh, $1.5 billion Canadian dollars over the following five years, and then uh, $493 million annually thereafter. So this is a a firm commitment on the part of Canada to, to try to um, inspire and leverage and, and he's, as you mentioned, talk about different kinds of innovative finance. So that's a, a pretty significant commitment on the part of the Canadian government. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's a huge commitment for us, and that's and that's going to be implemented through the program that I was just discussing, the Innovative International Assistance or the International Assistance Innovation Program and the Sovereign Loan Program. So, yeah, we're we're approaching very exciting times for global affairs. And Doreen, that that um, brings up the question about um, IIX launching the Innovative Finance for Sustainable Peace Initiative. You launched this at the UN General Assembly last year. So, talk a little bit about this initiative, how it fits with some of the work that that uh, that Corey is leading, and and why is this kind of approach necessary? Right. Yeah. It was you know it was uh, very very exciting last year um, when I was invited to address the General Assembly and. Um, and the request from the from the secretary general was, you know, give us um, some thoughts on how you think innovative finance can play a role in sustainable peace. So really, that was the genesis of it, and um, and that's when you know we sort of launched this effort, saying, hey, you know, why don't we just take it to the next level, and really see in everything we do and all the innovative products that we do, how we can actually create sustainable peace, and again you know, sort of putting sort of women front and center, you know, for it. So so the objective really was um, threefold. I mean, one was to effectively use the financial markets to drive sustainable pre- peace across the world um, by creating, you know, what I would call sort of business-worthy companies um, and uh, equal communities and really resilient planets. So, yes, so peace on earth, I realized. But, you know, it really was, you know, the fact that, um, why not? Why not challenge the financial markets? You know, if we can do this, and if we actually can create the products and and put it on them, and then the second one was to embed uh, gender lens into the global peace dividend. So, um, and I think Cheryl, I know this is sort of close to your heart with yes, the work absolutely. that you're doing in Rwanda. I know you know you and uh, um, Catherine is doing. A, you know, both of you are doing a lot of work there. Um, and shift the narrative from viewing women as victims of war to recognizing women as solution to peace building. And I think I feel, you know, very strongly, and I guess we very, feel very strongly about it, that stop seeing women as victim. We are not victim. Um, you know, we are part of the solution, and, uh, and women are needed uh, as a part of the solution for peace building. And the third is to galvanize the key stakeholders um, from both, you know, public sector, private sector, and also the philanthropic community to jointly create, you know, innovative financial products for peace. So these were the three initiatives, and um, and we are really sort of, you know, pushing at it with our products, trying to bring, uh, you know, partners into it, and uh, we're hoping to have a, you know, gathering around it towards the end of the year uh, or beginning of next year um, with some partners we're talking to. And I do think that... Um, you know, for us to be able to demonstrate that you can do this and through the financial products, through the measurement, um, I think it really is something that all of a sudden gets to be real, um, that, you know, this is not, you know, peace is something we need to um, build and sustain, and we can do that through the financial markets. So, you know, it's the beginning of the journey, but I think, um, you know, we've already shown it can be done, and not only through our work, of course, everyone who's in it, 
Um, and um, and we are quite excited. We are quite excited about it. So you know, we'll see. We'll yeah, see how well, it goes. And Doreen, you mentioned the uh, issue of impact and, and measuring progress, and I think that's a great uh, question that we can have for both of you. So, Corey, maybe you could talk a little bit about um, how the Global Affairs Canada, the feminist international assistance policy, is working, and how are you? You know, this um, initiative has pledged that ninety-five percent of Canada's bilateral international development assistance initiatives will target or integrate gender equality by 2021 and 2022. So how are you measuring your progress towards this? Yeah, so, I mean, this was a, this was a big announcement uh, back in June of 2017 that Canada would launch its feminist international assistance policy. And I have to say, you know, at first... Um, you know, a lot of the bilateral programs are wondering, can we really reach this target? Can we really put our money where our mouth is and integrate gender equality in a serious way in everything we do by 2022? And I'm happy to say that in just one year, Canada has already achieved this goal. So last year alone, 99% of Canada's new bilateral development assistance targeted or integrated gender equality in the empowerment of girls. And this raised our overall percentage now to 95%. So I think it shows the, the resilience of, and the interest of, of Canada's development programs in putting women front and center in all of our work. Um, and I don't think we're the only ones. Again, I think there is a general movement among donors to really start to measure and, and you know, put gender equality as a you know, as a key priority for all development. And we're even seeing that in the developing countries themselves so we're, who are starting to make gender equality a real priority in their national development plans. So countries like Colombia, Philippines, Laos, Jamaica are countries where women now hold just as many of the top management positions as men. So this is a wonderful progress, I think, and it's only going to get better I mean, even you'll see in the last 10 years alone, 50% of the Nobel Peace Prize laureates were women, and that compares to 15%, only 15% before that. But we know that women have been, um, have been behind the scenes, um, you know, working to contribute to these processes and mobilized um, towards peace for, for, for all of that, all of our history and just maybe have not been recognized. And so I think this is, too, where, um, you know, Canada, in my view, is really um, leading the pack in that we are we're not just making gender equality a theme. We're trying, we're trying to ensure that it cuts across all of our feminist international assistance policy areas. So there's nothing uh, that we do right now that shouldn't explicitly look at approaches to improving gender equality. Um, and in particular, this includes the empowerment of, of adolescent girls, and, and we have a very strong focus on um, the fight against sexual exploitation and abuse um, and the promotion of gender equality and humanitarian action. So it's always um, a challenge to measure this. I mean, often we, we can get into, um, you know, we can get into a situation where reporting on just Program on process and activities versus real outcomes, 
And I think to achieve outcomes, you know, it's a combination of several activities. It's a combination of, of intention, um, strategic focus. It's the management teams, the gender equality of the organization itself trying to achieve these goals or the government itself that's trying to implement new policies. So we try to take a multifaceted view of gender in all of our projects, uh, you know, looking at it from the project up right up to the institution, institution right up to the context level. Um, and in doing so, I think now we're starting to really sharpen our, our outcome indicators um, at a project level. But I also think that we, you know, as we, we continue to do this work, and particularly in the, um, in the program that I'm working on with Innovative Finance, it becomes more difficult to measure the direct impact um, that, that can be achieved. And we also have to be sure to start to balance um, the reporting burden on financial institutions. So this, again, creates some challenges, but we are taking a very concerted effort to develop a development impact framework that is really um, prescriptive or not, well, is really concrete about what it is we want to achieve um, when it comes to gender outcomes. And this is still a work in progress, and we recognize that a lot of, a lot of um, research needs to go into it, but it's definitely a commitment and something we're being held to account to in all of our programs, including the new one we are managing. And Doreen, I think this is a great point for you to come in and add, add your insight. I mean, IAX has been involved with doing assessments for a decade in 46 countries. So what have you learned and how, how, what insights would you bring to this discussion? Um, I think to echo what um, Corey was saying, I mean, you know, impact assessment, while uh, there are obviously a lot of calls for standardization and measurement and there's a lot of this discussion uh, right now going on, I think, um, you know, the reality is in terms of when you're especially also looking at uh, women empowerment in particular, um, it, is, it is difficult because, you know, women have been systematically excluded um, from the official systems and the formal economy, especially in the developing countries. Um, and also in the developed country, obviously, um, you know, the, now when we're talking about uh, various indices and all that with women, um, you know, sometimes it's, it's very low, the threshold. I mean, are there just a handful of women in the board, you know, and then, wow, then they're doing something for women. So I think, um, you know, the, interestingly, um, what we noticed that the organizations and, um, you know, the enterprises, they really have to sort of have an intention, um, that's a very important word, what Corey was said, uh, to integrate um, in the, the social impact and also in particular, you know, sort of the gender equality, you know, into their, into their core business. So whether, you know, their gender transformative income opportunities or, you know, sort of shifting the gender power dynamics or um, provision of even gender sensitive or gender specific goods, um, you know, incorporating women empowerment, et cetera. But one of the things that what is very important across the board um, is really that, which, um, again, you know, kind of echoing what Corey was mentioning, is really the outcome. And for us, we take it a level further, which is really looking at the indicators you know, of those outcomes. And, um, and we have been one of the organizations who have been very active with IRIS, the Impact Reporting Investment Standard uh, of GIN. And we put then financial indicators next to that. Um, if there has been a change in the person's life because of this uh, clean cook stove, 
how can we actually value that and who else has been impacted by it and what's the change that has happened. And then really looking at it, if you're going to um, really bring it in parallel with the financial um, outcomes, this has to be forward-looking. And it really then goes hand-in-hand hand, you know, with the financial result as well. And what we have seen um, for the investors, that is actually something very digestible. They understand that. You know? For them, they're like, wow, okay. So if I'm investing this amount of money, then you know, this is the impact it's going to have. Oh, okay, so I, I understand. So this impact is going to then also create this financial return. And yes, wow, there's a correlation with risk going down of my investment if you have more women. So we actually been able to show the correlation with risk impact and the financial return. And we do see the investors um, really liking it and embracing it. And I think um, this really shows the fact that you know, focusing on the social and environmental side and plus having a sort of a gender, of course, focus on it, it's not something that you really should be looking at. It really is more, you know, you are really uh, not being a good investor if you don't look at it because this has so many layers of implication, you know, on your investment, all in a very positive way. So it has been, you know, very, very interesting to be able to bring all those angles in and also really, you know, um, couple it with the financial side, which frankly, you know, is what drives and is driving um, the whole innovative finance movement. Yeah, and I think when you're talking about risk and financial returns and then the social impact, it really uh, speaks well to the private investor and sort of really fits with, with what Corey and her group are trying to do. So, Corey, you know, when, you've, when you think about some of the um, SMEs that you'll be working with and, and trying to encourage this, the finance and innovative approaches towards bringing more capital to bear, what are some of the challenges that you're facing around the impact measurement and what are your goals around this? Yeah, I think there is, you know, this is relatively new work, and I think in any case where we're working with partners that may not completely share our our overarching objectives, right? So we are essentially partnering with for-profit entities, um, recognizing that through their work, they can achieve social impact. Um, but we do ultimately speak different languages. Yes. And I think we're also measuring different things and in different ways. So a business or a financial institution is looking at uh, financial metrics primarily over social metrics, whereas we are really focused on the social aspects and the development impact far more than the financial metrics. But I think both of us need to start to... Um, at the very least, understand well and respect our, our different interests and impact expectations. And I think once we can, you know, really come to terms with, okay, what, what do we both need out of this and how do we generate then incremental impact um, through our partnership, we can start to lay out um, better me measurement systems. But I do think that the design of these impact measurement systems at a project level is is going to have to be tailored to the partner and to the unique um, situation or investment that they're making. And there is sort of an, a conversation that needs to happen to collaborately develop these these metrics. 
um, you know, just like in my own social enterprise, Mammal Botanics, we found that, you know, it was hard to balance all the time the social and financial objectives. And, um, you know, even for investors that could potentially come in, this is, you know, not all investors would would support, um, would put the same weight on each of the two aspects that become um, so important to your ability to generate value. So I think for, for Global Affairs Canada and for this program on innovative finance, it's going to be really important that we select the right partners, too, that, you know, like like IIX, that already have impact measurement frameworks in place that are really taking this seriously. Um, you know, again, the other thing that's really important for us is to have the data, uh, the baseline data. So we're getting better and better at measuring, um, you know, financial inclusion issues for women. We know right now that, you know, on gender gender gaps or the gender gap is starting to really reduce for women's access to finance. But still, um, you know, there's a gap of about only 42% of, of women compared to men have access to land and collateral. So we may know this is a big impediment to women's ability to access loans, as most loans around the world, and particularly longer-term loans, require um, fixed collateral to secure the asset. So, again, this this data and these baselines and, and having not only the development community but also the private sector community start to look at, well, how do we, from a business perspective, solve some of these challenges? But they need we need to develop stronger databases to anchor our input framework. And I'm convinced that that's going to happen over time as I've as I feel this is still a relatively new um, field, but um, you know those are those are two things that I would I would say are really important. You know, learning, investing in in share in a shared understanding of our results, and also together starting to invest in in the database and the baseline data to set our indicators against. Yeah, and I like the, your point there because it really echoes back to Doreen's initial discussion about women not being victims. I mean, often there's this kind of systemic challenge that that could be easily addressed when you understand if you want to get more financing, you need to have land as collateral. And if you can't own land, then that's blocked with that. So Doreen, I mean, you've been you've been having this focus on, you know, placing women front and center of capital markets and, and building sustainable peace. I mean, that's that's a core of, of, of what a lot of what you've done. So what are some of the difficulties you faced on this journey? And, and how did you overcome those? You know, it's very interesting. I think, um, Cheryl, I mean, I, for me now, um, when I sort of look back, I mean, I had to do a lot of things where really looking at what the initially what the market would actually accept and then how to actually change the way they were doing things, right? So, so a big part of that really was making the platforms that we have, the products that we have, really be um, in every way, shape, or form, be very similar to what um, the market and the investors were used to. So I think uh, this, again, kind of went back to the whole risk element and how we worked with it, um, you know, sort of trying to mitigate that. And frankly, also on a, on a personal level, um, I had to make a lot of decisions, even as simple as, um, you know, who goes to the meeting, right? So, um, 
you know, who are they comfortable with? Um, you know, if I'm showing up and actually talking about um, gender and investing in an organization which is doing, you know, bringing solar panels, but we know that the payment system is going to be better if the panel is owned by the woman. Um, you know, is this more effective if I go and say it to a, to a male investor or should a man do it? And we actually saw that it's better when a man does it because it, you know, they feel comfortable. Oh, wow, if, you're, if a man is actually saying this to me and I'm a man, so this actually may be true. So, well, again, things have changed over the last 10 years, but we had to do a lot of those things in terms of really understanding what the market was comfortable with and then sort of slowly introducing things which were not that comfortable for them. Um, but I think also, you know, I'm actually, um, I'm going to, sort of switch the tables a little bit, Cheryl, if you're okay with it. Sure. And, uh, and, you know, have the listeners have the pleasure to sort of hear from you as well. I mean, you are doing some amazing work um, at the center, and I know there's a lot of focus on gender, and, and of course, this being Wharton, um, you know, a lot of thinking around the private sector coming in and uh, playing a role in all this. I mean, what what is sort of your some of your learnings and what are you, you're seeing um, in this aspect. Yeah. You know, at the Wharton Social Impact Initiative, we, we try to do research as well as to have some student-facing activities. We are located in a university after all. And, and we have been doing a good amount of, of research on the, the gender lens approach. Um, our vice dean, Catherine Klein, did a, a couple of uh, interesting reports on um, – whether or not there's a financial correlation with having women on boards. And, and she really found through meta-studies that there's not much evidence that there's a strong impact there. But there's not an evidence that there's any weak impact. And, and part of this makes all sorts of sense because, you know, having one or two women on a board is not going to really dramatically affect the board. And, and boards, um, they're, they're – uh, cause in business changes are often kind of negligible. So, I mean, that made sense. But she also did a really interesting report recently on, on public equities and trying to say what makes a company good for, for women. And this can apply for um, private companies as well, but it's really, you know, are there, is there representation of women? Are they paid well? You know, and these kinds of, these kinds of topics really bring home the question of what is something good for women. It's not quite, I think, during yet to understanding empowerment, because most of these are U.S. companies, but it's certainly saying, how do we understand both the issues that women are facing, but also the factors that that can address that and change that? And that's why I really like the example about the loan, because um, if you don't own land, you can't get loans. And if you can't get loans, your ability to create and grow businesses is, is really difficult. And so sometimes just understanding some of those those root causes is important. That's part of what we try to get to. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And again, I mean, this is this is how it all gets starts, right? Started. So if you, you know, if you start looking at it and uh, chipping away at it, and I think, again, you know, you're talking about public markets or private markets or even, you know, the developing markets. And, you know, I think the underlying theme there is the fact that we have to have women there some way or the other. Um, so, so I'm really glad you're doing that work. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and it harkens back to to Corey's point about, you know, trying to make sure that we're, we're getting the information and sharing the information, right? Because I think that the more we're able to understand the conditions in, that women are working under in different countries and understand the financial implications and understand what the data shows about are they using the cook stoves or not, 
that's going to help us all become smarter and better around this and more likely and more able to make change. So I think it's a, a great way for a, a public, private, and um, NGOs to work together in this area. So, Corey, as a final question, what's the meaning of peace to you? Oh, this is a big question. <laughs> um, of course. I think I'm going to <laughs> refer to Jody Williams and, and her view that sustainable peace is really achieved when the majority of people on this planet, particularly um, you know, women, have enough access to resources to live dignified lives. And they have that freedom of, of fear, of course. So they have security and they have a freedom of basic need. Um, so I think women do play an important role and have, to my point earlier, I mean, we're seeing a rise in women, Nobel Peace Prize winners, but <clears throat> we know that women play a key role in mobilizing their communities to take action and promote justice and equality in their surroundings. And um, it's encouraging that I feel we're finally putting a face and a name to the women who struggle against these obstacles every day and have made those sacrifices to advocate for peace and for their own rights. Um, so I think this is why, for us, I'm really happy to be part of um, our development program right now within Global Affairs Canada because I think that, you know, we've done such, um, we've made such a strong commitment and put action behind that to empower women and give women um, a stronger voice. You know, in our, in our last annual ODA report, we've been able to, to put $150 million directly towards supporting grassroots women's rights organizations and movements around the world. And I think for me to, you know, Peace is um, is a time, or it's it's only sustainable when we have uh, the ability of of all people to you know to advocate for it, to advocate for their rights, and to ultimately achieve um, benefit from from this economically and socially um, benefit from from the world they live in. So um, to answer that very big question, <laughs> I, I see women, again, as front and center to that, to that answer. Absolutely. Any closing words from you, Doreen? Um, you know, for me, I would say peace is um, one word, which is um, happiness. And I think um, happiness comes from, frankly, opportunity and resources. Um, so I think, you know, if we can somehow figure out to give opportunity and resources to pretty much everyone on this planet. Um, I think, you know, women and men. I think uh, we will have peace. So everyone wants to, um, you know, have the ability to have a voice and, uh, and be happy. And, uh, and I, think, I think we can do it. I think we can do it. I think we are all slowly getting there. Great. So I'm hopeful. Thank you. Thank you, Doreen and Corey, for this uh, great discussion. Great. Thank you, Cheryl. Thanks. Corey, thank you very yes, much. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure.